Can I listen to your podcast? All right. Welcome to another episode of Middle School Music. This is season two, episode four, with your host, Farhan Lalji, and my good friend and colleague and co-host, Dario Devet. How you doing this morning, Dario? I'm good. I'm alive. I don't have coronavirus. Oh, man. It's taken over, isn't it? Touch wood. Touch, touch find the wood in this in the <laughs> podcast studio. Use my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really has been something. I mean, uh, we've both kind of been impacted both in our professional lives and our personal lives. Um, as well. I won't go into detail around that, but we can say London is experiencing some of the uh, mania around coronavirus, a lot of events being cancelled, including some concerts. Yeah, it seems like uh, this is having a massive effect on the media industry. Um, I see some movie releases have actually been pulled back, like the new James Bond release, but you know, really focusing on the music side, a uh, huge effect on the concert industry. I know in, uh, in California, we have Coachella coming up at South by Southwest, yeah, um, South by Southwest hasn't been canceled, but there are a number of big media sponsors, like your Netflix, your Amazons, your Googles, that have pulled their sponsorship and are not having any of their teams go out for South by Southwest, which is which is a bit crazy. Massive impact. Hey, maybe it gives artists a chance to actually get back in the studio and record some new material, especially considering everyone's so damn content hungry. Yeah, that's true. It could be the Corona era of of music in in a few months' time. Hopefully, <laughs> um, I think you're feeling the major impact in Asia. Um, I know Khalid, um, Stormzy, as well as Green Day, even uh, Avril Lavigne, who is doing her comeback uh, kind of world tour this year, has yeah. canceled a lot of Asian uh, dates. And uh, probably the biggest boy band in the world, BTS, has also kind of canceled the number of, uh, of events they were going to have in Seoul, in Korea, so at their Olympic Stadium. So that's probably a lot of massive lost revenue right there, including kind of, as you were mentioning earlier to me before we started recording, the insurance industry and the impact of all of this on the insurance industry. Yeah, think about Australia. They've had the fires and now it's still summer season, still festival season. The house scene is pretty big. I'm talking of house um, or dance music, however you want to phrase it. You've got uh, Ultra Music Festival, Winter Music Conference in Miami. Hasn't that been pulled? First time in 21 years that Ultra is not going to happen in Miami this year, which is which is a bit insane as well. Like, So we're really kind of seeing the impact of the coronavirus um, in a lot of these gatherings and a lot of these concerts and a lot of these events. Absolutely huge. I wonder if a lot of this, I mean, obviously it's precautionary um, and, you know, you'd rather be safe than sorry. But I wonder if some of it's not a bit like on part overreacting a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's one of these better safe than sorry, especially in, in the Asian market where, you know, kind of a lot of this and especially in the U.S. as well, um, mm. where you're having where you're seeing a significant amount of death. I mean, I know the proportional percentages are quite low, but I don't think you want to kind of mess around, especially if there are a lot of unreported cases probably kind of going around, you know, and, and I think at this case, you're kind of at least especially as it's early on in kind of the virus has spread still. You know, we don't really know all the information, and neither of us are medical professionals. No, it's hard. But, 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 it does give a good opportunity for the industry to try new models. Definitely. Um, if you remember, Marshmallow did a live concert on Twitch True. through Fortnite, yeah. uh, which had, I think, the largest. I spoke, we spoke about this before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, largest attendee of any concert ever. Um, 
And so maybe it gives an opportunity for artists to maybe perform, particularly in Asia where this is more kind of ex the customary. Yeah, I mean, U2 tried this ages ago with YouTube, which didn't go very well. And Coldplay then did it a little while after, right? Like, But those were kind of very different in that they had concerts and they were trying to stream the concerts as well. Whereas like Marshmallows was really fit for that venue, right? Yep. It was kind of like, let's do a concert on uh, Fortnite through Twitch. Right. In that sense, it was really kind of structured that way. And it'll be interesting to see if the music industry tries to adapt for some of that lost revenue by maybe being a little bit more innovative in terms of how they engage with fans in their own homes. Take take South Korea, for example. Uh, BTS could do a live performance. There are businesses that exist where you can donate uh, to, uh, to um, an artist or creative through their live stream. I mean, that's one effective way of saying, okay, cool, freemium model in the concert industry, we'll do a performance, you guys donate based on your interest, based on, on uh, your fandom. Um, it's, it's definitely worth the experiments. It'll be interesting to see if, if any kind of like big name stars, big name acts kind of take this opportunity to kind of experiment with that model. I think you'll struggle maybe in the West more so than the East. Uh, yeah, I mean, unless you're part of the, the gaming fraternity where... It's customary to watch a lot of Twitch. I think a lot of other um, fans like to experience uh, these events live. I haven't seen any effect necessarily on the London. Uh, yeah, the, there haven't been any kind of London concerts canceled, although I haven't been to any in recent kind of weeks. So it's hard to know if that's actually having an impact in the place. Like, I mean, people might be buying tickets months ago, and even though the concert's going, it, it'll be interesting to see if there's still 100% attendance of all of those ticket buyers. Yeah, definitely starting to feel like, uh, hey, I mean, the commute in the morning is a lot more pleasant. You can get a seat on the tube. <laughs> and, and you are starting to see a couple more people with masks um, yeah. on the transport here than, than normal, even though kind of the authorities haven't recommended them. 3M getting all the brand exposure. <laughs> anyway, talking of things beginning with an M, we're here to talk about music. So um, Very true. What are we going to cover today, Dario? Today, I want to talk, want to get a bit geeky on you. Uh, take things back a bit uh, away from the artist spotlight side of things. We'll get to that a bit later. But really looking at um, a very interesting fund structure, which is the Hypnosis Songs Fund. Yeah, let's get back to our roots in terms of talking about finance and media. Right? There, we, there we go. <laughs> um, you know, really talking about how uh, hypnosis is the first of its kind, I think almost in the world, but most definitely in terms of its fund structure in the UK. Um, why, why don't you start with the basics? So okay. Should we, should we kick in and, and dig into hypnosis? Do you want to start maybe by kind of giving our listeners kind of the, the detailed view of what exactly hypnosis is and, and how it's structured? Sure. So... Hypnosis is the only UK-listed investment vehicle with pure play exposure to music royalties. So what I mean by that is that the fund in its entirety comprises of one asset, and that asset is music IP hmm. or music royalties. Well, it's one asset class. One asset class. Right, like a number of music music kind of rights yes. underneath that. My mistake. Right, but it's one asset class. Yep. So you've got a number of kind of uh, song um, and maybe even album, or is it just kind of purely on a song by song basis? It's purely songs. Um, so it's about seven, close to seven thousand five hundred songs. Wow. There are twenty seven catalogs. Okay. Um, and these aren't aren't junk songs. These are proper songs. Um, okay. It's really it's interesting because the foundation of this business is built on on reputation, which is essentially what the the music industry was really all about, at least on the corporate side prior to the streaming era. Um, the, the stimulus for, for where this comes from is the industry has or had been in a 15-year decline. Uh, you know, piracy really 
really throwing a curveball. And uh, about four years ago, uh, things really started to change with the kind of uh, mass appeal of streaming services. Now, we can start getting technical about profitability or whatever it is, but nevertheless, the past four years, we've seen consecutive growth in the industry, mm. thanks to the likes of Spotify, Deezer, I mean, Apple Music, if you really want to throw that in there. But, I mean, the, the thing that I understood about hypnosis, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that they're also able to then kind of sell on some of those rights in terms, not necessarily sell on the rights, but actually try to promote the usage of that catalog or usage of that songs in popular media, right? Like, so they could kind of push your Netflixes and Amazons and whoever else when they're creating content to kind of use that music, also in commercials and things like that as well. Spot on, exactly. So it was founded by Merck Mercuriatus, um, Greek tongue twister there. Um, he was the ex-manager or former manager of the likes of Elton John, Guns N' Roses, Beyonce, uh, Mary J. Blige, Joss Stone, and the list goes on. And uh, really the, the, the crux of this model is essentially they have this, this uh, catalog of around 7,500 songs. They have 12 executives on the team that each manage 600 songs. And because they have strong industry relationships, the real focus here is maximizing synchronization income. And what synchronization income is, is exactly what you've just said, is ensuring that they can get these songs replayed or hooked up in deals and the likes of movies, mm. streaming services, TV shows. Commercials. Exactly. Right. So what they're doing is they're buying uh, really attractive songs yeah. and then they're kind of pushing their agenda in the industry to get these songs promoted. It's almost like you have an underutilized asset. Right, so Completely. you have the underutilized asset, and then you're like, how do you increase the utility and the utilization of that asset, leveraging their network? Right, so it's very different from other alternative asset classes. So if you have cars, for example, or you have I don't know fine wine and things like that, you you don't want to use those, right? You want them to stay kind of in tip-top shape in terms of like how you manage the crate of wine or you know kind of the the engine in the car. But with music, you have that asset, and then if you can promote it to the right level without diluting kind of the appeal of that artist or that song, you know, that's how you can maximize the income from that specific asset. Completely. So to put it into context, right, considering the industry was in such a slump, uh, copyright libraries were sold at distressed valuations, mm. right? So they weren't valuable. So Hypnosis saw this opportunity, buys up the songs or the catalogs, and uh, since then, over the three-year historical income since purchase, they've, they've, there's been a, almost a 13 times uplift in the value of those songs. Wow. Because why? Again, the industry is actually experiencing growth. Hmm. And so essentially, you know, you're, not, you're, you're technically winning just on the, the appreciation of the asset itself, let alone you're pushing its, its revenue-generating capacities further. That's, that's really interesting. I wonder about the dynamics of the actual kind of song creators and the writers, right? So if you are an artist, and let's say, for example, you have toured as much as you're able to tour, you've, you're, you're an Elton John or other kind of artists who are saying, okay, I'm done with that side of the business. And then you're sitting on all these assets that you yourself can't go out and promote or inflate the value of because you don't have those relationships. You're not quite sure about the financial side of this. So selling that asset on gives you a short cash windfall. I mean, and then the buyer is able to take that underutilized asset and try to actually not necessarily inflate, but grow the value of that asset as well. Which is what's so, like, I guess it's a little bit risky about the streaming industry is, you mm. know, stream farms or click farms are realities. So if you really want to, then you could say, okay, cool, we're just going to set up, 
don't know. Yeah, a farm in Indonesia. Far, yeah, exactly. And then we're 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 technically um, growing the value. Yeah. It's interesting though. Like, I mean, I think if that becomes a problem, my guess is the streaming platforms will take more of a hold um, on it. I mean, I think when it does become, you know, kind of like at the level of a Facebook with fake news, right, with fake clicks and fake kind of streams, and it's really impacting Spotify's bottom line, especially as a publicly traded company now. Uh, likewise for Apple with Beats and everything else that they've got on the streaming side. It, I think, when the click kind of fake streams. Uh, issue becomes a real big issue that's when they'll kind of pull the plug but my guess is that you know even relatively the stream revenue comparatively to the commercialization through the media and other sources especially if you're starting from like a standing start of almost zero for some of these songs and then kind of growing that and it's almost becomes this flywheel right you get the song it gets popular on you know kind of by being seen in a commercial or a TikTok show <laughs> or TikTok right and then you grow the streams right because people are shazamming that song and it doesn't matter if the song is you know 10 months old or 10 years old right you can kind of stream any of these songs you can get access to this you can grow the revenue and grow that flywheel so even if it is a song from 1992 that's being played on a show from 2018 Right, if that show kind of grows in popularity in 2020, right, all of a sudden now you've got an increase in streams as well. So everybody kind of, or every kind of media that's using that is growing the revenue that's associated with that song. It's almost genius. It, you know, music IP though is an extremely durable asset. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, just you know, that's why private investors are turning more towards alternative asset investments because likes of Brexit or Donald Trump's sure. tweets or coronavirus create political and economic uncertainty which affect the public stock markets. Those don't affect how much you replay the value of a song. Actually, they, they might, it increase might increase it. Yeah, it might increase it because you you're know, at home sp spending more time looking at kind of more content. You need those endorphins because the world's become extremely yeah, depressing okay. in 2020. Um, you know, that aside though, it's also the fact that these rights last for, for more than 70 years if wow. a co-author dies. So, you know, sustainably, the, the focus of hypnosis is really ensuring that they're acquiring 100% of those songs, minimum 35%. But these aren't, uh, you know, poor songs. There's the likes of Justin Bieber, mm. um, Blink-182. Um, they've got both, both uh, but it's the holistic rights of that song. Yeah. I mean, you can unpack, you know, the different types of rights at another point in time. It gets quite technical. Um, but, you know, he's also got writers' um, credits and, and rights as well. The likes of Pooh Bear, who's been integral to, to writing yeah, for Justin Bieber. The likes yeah. of The Dream. And if you remember him from 2006, he's still very much involved on the writing side. Uh, you know, but the interesting part about hypnosis is that they actually have they've raised close to 400 million pounds through IPO. Wow. I mean, it'll be really interesting to also see if they use some of that catalog for sampling as well. So, like, you know, we had, you mentioned the game, and that's kind of what sparked my thought of you've got more kind of recent artists almost doing covers of 90s and early 2000s kind of songs. What was the uh, the song that I was telling you that I was listening? Oh, Little Uzi, uh, Little Uzi Vert sampled Backstreet Boys. Backstreet Boys, uh, yeah. I Want It That Way. Yeah, exactly. So he's got a new song that sampled a, a Backstreet Boys song from almost 30 years ago, right? And he's kind of, it's crazy, isn't it? That it was, it's been that long, 25 or so kind of years ago for, that, right. for that Backstreet Boys track. And now Little Uzi Vert is kind of, you're not even using a sample, but basically doing a, almost a cover of that track. Now, all of a sudden, that asset, that song, which was popular that many years ago, probably saw its peak in terms of commercial revenue for the band and the original writers. If they sell on that asset thinking, well, hey, you know what? 
we're not going to get Lil Uzi Vert to kind of do a cover. Now, all of a sudden, Hypnosis potentially could use a song like that and see if they can get other artists to cover, sample, and then grow the revenue that way as well. Dude, it's, it's genius. And, you know, something I want to point out, actually, is despite the f- effects of the coronavirus on public markets, the FTSE 100 saw an 11% drop of its value Whoa. Okay, this yeah. week. Hypnosis stock price largely withstood the market pressure. That's crazy. Okay, and uh, so you've got a hold there, right? So you've got you know your your assets or your your companies like Zoom and Peloton, which are kind of growing in value. And Peloton's <laughs> another one, right? That kind of grows from this, and so now Peloton becomes a revenue stream for some of these songs as well, because that's another kind of distribution mechanism to make additional revenue. And it's funny how Zoom and Peloton are growing in value, and Hypnosis is kind of holding its value throughout this storm. So the FTSE 100 has performed, it's, it's had its worst week since the global financial crisis in 2008. Wow. Yeah. And just as much as 14 hours ago, it was announced that uh, hypnosis has been added as a constituent to the FTSE 250 index. Wow. Effective that means as of March most, 20th. The most valuable 250 companies on the FTSE index. Yeah, and that's uh, a new fund focused on the music rights. That's crazy. Which is awesome. I mean, Which is going to have songs from Bieber 20 year, or 10, 15 years ago. Blink-182. Blink-182. And some other throwback them. artists. Uh, some which actually, if, if you're born in the 90s, you won't even yeah, know who yeah. they are. But those tracks alone are responsible for majority of the value of, of the fund. But what's interesting to point out, out actually is a, a large, uh, if you look at the cap table for hypnosis, it's it's actually just asset managers. Really? Yeah. So the asset managers, I mean, so for those who, who might be new to, to this kind of lingo and world, you know, the asset managers are professional kind of fund managers, right? Who are trying to, to just kind of make their money by owning uh, some of these assets, either on the public or private markets, and they will have um, limited partners or investors who will invest in their funds, and then it's their job to create value for those investors. And it feels like those are the ones who are buying up uh, assets like hypnosis or stocks and shares like hypnosis in order to kind of grow their value. Is that, is that right? Spot on. Wow, that's insane. So, you know, those are usually the ones who are, are good kind of predictive indicators of where the underlying value is in a lot of cases. So it's really interesting to see that group of investors buying up that kind of asset. Look, it's very capital intensive. I'm not going to lie. Sure. I mean, these these catalogs, uh, even if you go into something like royaltyexchange.com and you want to just personally buy a catalog in your own capacity, you'll find that anything of reasonable substance costs a lot of money. Now, Mercuriatis and Hypnosis are taking it to the next level considering their industry relationships. They have the likes of Nile Rogers on their advisory board, etc. Um, you're, you're spending a huge amount of money. They've spent over $650 million acquiring catalogs, and those catalogs and hits have been recorded by the likes of Adele, Beyonce, Ed Sheeran. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. And that's on your kind of like one extreme, right? Like, I mean, it would be interesting to see if Hypnosis or others kind of come in and try to disrupt the market even further if you see things like income sharing agreements around new and upcoming artists kind of take hold, right? Where maybe you know the asset hasn't performed as well as it could because it doesn't have a major label behind it or it's not getting the right promotion, but you know that it's got value. So it'll be interesting to see if artists end up almost selling a percentage of their future shares to professional managers like Hypnosis. This is the new label model. This yeah, totally. is the way that you become profitable and build a new label in the 20th, 21st century. Yeah, it's, it's the asset and then actually pumping up the value of the asset. It's not about, hey, let me organize a radio station to go and play it. Exactly. 
which is mm. what Spotify is essentially doing. Yeah. I mean, the promotion side of things, they're kind of contractually limited in the context of, of how they've set up their commercial agreements with their labels, even though they've tried to do it on the side. But Mercuriatus and them are saying, okay, fine, we have these skills. This is what made artists successful in the 90s and early 2000s. We're instead going to acquire these rights and continue to work with these artists. And there's still capacity to potentially take on new artists once they've kind of solved their teething problems initially. Wow, that's, I mean, it's a phenomenal kind of shift, right? Like, especially for somebody my age who remembers kind of the mixtape and remembers recording off radio and not necessarily seeing kind of the revenue generation uh, for the artist or for the label through a lot of that kind of music interaction. And now to have seen how far things have come, whereas I can make a playlist on Spotify, I can create and share that playlist, and the artist is going to get paid, and there might be secondary markets around that kind of track or around the track listings around that. That's insane. And if you think about it, though, there's still so much more upside because emerging market maturity in the streaming space is still very nascent. Uh, you have data constraints, uh, feature phone legacy, uh, even if it, when it comes to, to automobiles. Uh, if you, you know, I was listening to a talk the other evening from, I think it was the head of corporate development of Spotify, who mentioned that audio is under-monetized by 10 times compared to video. Wait, for wait, hold on, hold on. Can you say that again and say that a little bit slower for the audience and maybe ex <laughs> and unpack that a little bit? So, okay. so what did he say about audio and the monetization <laughs> of audio? I get to Ant. Yeah, totally. Um, so, so audio is under-monetized by 10 times multiple in comparison to video. Right. So what you mean is when there is audio content, the monetization of that audio content is one-tenth of kind it's, of how video is monetized. Exactly. Wow. Um, but the likes of AirPods wireless headphones, voice technologies in the car. Home speakers, all of that. Exactly. So. Have enabled access... Uh, or opportunity to potentially monetize or increase monetization or mm. reduce that delta in, yeah. in, 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 in the monetization multiple between the two mediums. Now, kind of unpacking that, Spotify is focused on podcasts. I mean, they had the acquisition of Gimlet, et cetera, last year. And The Ringer, which is a, exactly. a media and sports podcast that Bill Simmons sped up after leaving ESPN. And they're focusing on how you know podcasts very much mimic the radio format as it is. Uh, which, yes, is partially true, but also talks about how, uh, you know, there's opportunity for the likes of storytelling, etc. And that's where you, you see potential upside moving forward. But kind of, in my opinion, I don't buy that because that was around prior to the television. I mean, like you're still mimicking radio models like we just look at the Chinese podcasting space. And, and maybe because the cultural significance is different, but people are prepared to pay a premium to learn new things, to upskill uh, but, but but I do buy that it's slightly different in terms of how the audio distribution channels themselves are monetized, right? So previously you would have ad revenue in between, like from, you know, and my, it was quite, I think I mentioned this on an earlier podcast about when we were in Toronto and my kids getting annoyed at the radio because of the commercials, right? Which is what we grew up with, right? Like radio, television with commercials as the monetization for those channels. And I think you mentioned the Chinese market where I think people are willing to almost micro spend, Right, yes. on a per you know kind of listen or on that per session or on a monthly subscription. And I think we are seeing some of that model shifting into the European, US, North American, the more kind of established markets around media. And I'm wondering if we're going to see that more kind of um, separation of these different commercial models where the audience is exactly is actually paying for the access to that music. Yeah, it's it's uh I mean, it's exciting times for the streaming platforms. I don't want to veer off too much into that discussion because I guess we could unpack that for a long time. Sure. I think the biggest challenge for something like hypnosis is 
determining an accurate value for their songs moving forward because historically they seem to have acquired uh, you know songs which have a strong reputational pull yeah. um, and you know you would typically value those through a DCF or discounted cash flow model looking yeah. at historical income and being able to project that forward there's enough data there to do that now yeah, yeah it's essentially like growth equity investing whereas like the new songs is like VC it's early stage you have no financial records and you're kind of like well you know we got to determine the the, the brand value of the artist and and what their upside is moving forward. It'll be interesting to see if you get kind of like sector multiples for the music industry, right? Like what's a jazz multiple versus a hip hop multiple? Even within those industries, do you get kind of micro segments like, you know, kind of your, uh, you know, kind of your old school hip hop multiple versus your new school kind of South hip hop kind of multiple on that side as well to understand what those DCFs actually look like on a per genre or sub genre level and basis. I mean, it's definitely there. And we saw it with Royalty Exchange when uh, they acquired the Bass Brothers catalog. The Bass Brothers were integral to Eminem's success, um, not actually Dr. Dre. Mm. Uh, kind of divorced his relationship with them in his rehab phase. And uh, they tried to IPO Royalty Exchange um, using Eminem's rights and the forecasted cash flows on the back of the success of those songs. So you are starting to see that. And I think we're at a very exciting time to potentially see a whole new monetization model and a whole new investment industry emerge in music IP. Um, and as you know, I've been a massive advocate for this for a very long time. Yeah, it's funny to see the world kind of catching up, right? Or these channels or these kind of um, revenue models or fund structures. I mean, part of it is, you know, digital kind of taking it to the next level, right? From a distribution perspective, from a channel perspective, you know, things like Patreon or things like Peloton or whatever that might be either physical products or commercial products didn't exist kind of 20 years ago, right? So the fact that these new products are now existing, the distribution channels are just kind of different now. And so we're seeing kind of the world catch up to the ideas we might have had a couple of years ago. But I think the two factors to highlight here, you know, Traditionally, things like music rights or catalogs were available to ultra-high net worths, institutional investors mm. who had to pay to play, to be there. Um, now you're finding that because of democratized access as a result of, of, of the exponential growth in technology, infrastructural platforms that are allowing for people to think innovatively and actually build businesses in the space, leveraging on their relationships because they have to think differently because things like labels and other incumbents might not be around in the future. Um, yeah. you know, and, and then on top of that, you've got, um, Oh man, I've just lost my train of thought. Well, I, I will say that it feels really interesting to kind of see that, you know, the artists have kind of changed their kind of mindset, right? So you had the struggling artists going to your pubs and clubs, trying to get the attention of the A&R artist to try to potentially get a record deal where they would take on some debt from a promotional material perspective, hope to recoup that debt in terms of album sales, and then hopefully tour on top of that to become really kind of successful financially. Now the artist kind of has a very different kind of model, right? Where you can put your music on digitally, hopefully you get discovered digitally, hopefully you get promoted digitally. You know, maybe you make revenue through the kind of like performance basis, but at the same time you could potentially sell a catalog and then become quite wealthy off the sale of that catalog. And the person buying that catalog then is able to also kind of commercialize the asset even further. I do want to kind of take a little bit of issue with one of the things you said about the democratization of it. Mm -hmm. Because I do feel like, you know, the democratization of it is happening to an extent, but it really is the professional managers and the, well, from an asset ownership perspective, 
and the professionals within kind of organizations like hypnosis that have the relationships in order to, to help those things yeah. promote. It'll be really interesting to see, and I think this is where royalty exchange versus hypnosis kind of differ, right? Your royalty exchange is hoping that by owning the asset, somebody else is going to promote it. There's going to be some serendipity in terms of that song getting promoted again and the value increasing almost organically. Whereas your hypnosis is saying, no, we know we can promote this Artificial. Song, right? We can, not even artificial, but it's almost manipulated, right? It's like, we can make this song worth more. How do we they have get the around this from the FCA? That's what I want to know. Well, the FCA, I mean, if you think about it as an asset class, right? Like, it's imagine if you're a farmer, right? You're able to grow that, and so, or even the oil side of things as well, right? Yes. You get production, you get supply, demand, and that's how they're managing. Is it not kind of like insider trading, or I mean, like, there's not murky waters there. I mean, well, no, because if you're, it's basically promoting an asset that hasn't been promoted, right? So if you know that, hey, I'm Dario, I'm you know a hip hop rapper from South Africa who's made great <laughs> music, right? But at the that's same time. Me. But same time, you don't have the access to Netflix or Amazon to actually promote it. So you're, and it's the same thing that's been happening for generations of artists, right? You're at the almost the um, the the service of the label. But then right? those people that are involved in those relationships can invest directly in the fund and profit off their own activities, which is the part where I'm just like, okay, I mean, here's, yeah, an, I see what you're here's an example, right? So a company, I mean, we've spoken about this before. I think it was in episode one, Vest. Yep. Right, they're acquiring rights, but not the masters. Right, it's publishing rights, and they provide a cash advance to the creative. And just to kind of rehash here, you know, when a song is created, there are normally like thirteen to fifteen people involved in the Beyonce song, and they'll find random person number fourteen who has a minuscule percentage of or people or, ten or, through or people ten through yeah. thirteen or whatever. Sure, sure, sure. But not people which have which have, which have a material holding. Yeah. Uh, rights holding, whereas hypnosis is going straight, you know, Emil Haney, like yeah, yeah, yeah. the real deals, Tom DeLonge, like right. these, these are, are, these are the major producers. Yeah. On so, these, so, so, so tracks. your revenue, the opportunity to maximize revenue flows through into your pocket as an investor directly. Whereas on the vest side, you know, it's got to go through a bunch of hurdles and you're, you're getting that right paid directly to you, but there's a time gap and a time delay and it's, it's mm. complex, um, which makes it more challenging. You know, but yeah. but 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 on that side, uh, I guess it less checks and balances, so it becomes a bit more difficult to determine. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and this goes beyond just kind of music, right? It's probably all media, right? Where you've got the rights owners kind of being able to then kind of promote the actual as underlying asset and then capture the value on that, right? You're right that they are kind of really closely kind of linked, and we're not necessarily seeing the regulators or anybody else for that matter from a market perspective come in and try to kind of either rectify some of that kind of incongruency in terms of who owns the asset and who's actually capitalizing and maximizing on the asset. It'll be interesting to see, like, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation around, you know, somebody like Netflix potentially capturing somebody like Spotify and doing something like in terms of merging the markets, right, because you're media distribution. And right now you're in film and television, but can you also take in audio yeah. in that sense? And in that case, if you've got the distribution and then you're kind of, you know, Spotify's kind of dabbled in kind of almost label-like activities. So if you have ownership of the media, then you're promoting that media on kind of other content channels. It'll be interesting to see if that's the point where people say, actually, this is where a regulator needs to get involved because it's just too close together in all of this. Totally. I think, actually taking a step back, I do want to go into to the different revenue channels here. There are basically eight sources of revenue per song. Right, so you've got three different types of royalties. You have mechanical royalties, which are due when a copy of a song is made. 
right? Performance royalties, which are due when a song is performed live or broadcast, and synchronization income, which is due when a song is used in another form of media or moving picture. So kind of digging down a bit, mechanical royalties, right, which is due when a copy of a song is made, comes in the form of a physical CD, DVD, vinyl, or digital being downloading or streaming. Performance royalties, when a song is performed live or broadcast, comes from radio, streaming, or played in the likes of a shop, a gym, or a restaurant. Hmm. And synchronization income is the likes of TV adverts, movies, and video games. So, I mean, you're acquiring proper rights from proper songs, proper writers, proper artists, and you're distributing them or maximizing their upside in all these channels. It's, it's, it's a really great model. It, it's funny, and it kind of leads us, I think, to a natural kind of conclusion where we can talk about some other stuff, but the intrinsic <laughs> kind of value of the song right the song itself has a tremendous amount of value but it's kind of like an underutilized undercaptured value that you kind of have to have the relationships in order to really kind of maximize that value that you can create out of that asset in terms of the actual song totally totally it's a uh, very very cool uh if you're interested in kind of looking at alternative asset investments take a peek at hypnosis um or reach out to one of us if you want to learn, learn some more, some more. All right. Thanks, Dario. Cool. So Farhan, talking of new music, I see Kendrick Lamar's just started his album release cycle. Um, supposedly, this uh, pglang.com is popping up everywhere. Um, PG Lang. PG Lang. Okay. I maybe we're pronouncing it wrong. Or like the PG is meant to come across something else, like six, like six black and black. You know. Yeah, yeah. Or like Dead Mile Five. Sure. Um, but super cool. And I want to read you kind of what that means. Go for it. To, um, to Kendrick. Yeah. So so. According to Kendrick Lamar, PG Lang is multilingual. It says, our community speaks music, film, television, art, books, and podcasts, because sometimes we have to use different languages to get the point of our stories across. Stories that speak to many nations, many races, and many ages. That is why our writers, singers, directors, musicians, and producers break formats when we build ideas and make them real for the curious. Putting round pegs through square holes is not a process. We embrace the idea of anarchy and challenges that make us stronger. PG Lang is focused on using our experiences and nurturing our many co collaborators to build stories that are equally accessible and engaging, then fitting them with the best media. We are creators. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's something that kind of speaks to um, what I think Kendrick has done almost organically in his career, you know, with kind of doing the soundtrack to Black Panther and the integration of Black Panther and the music being so vital to that, as well as kind of his creation, as well as his label, his own musical creation, and then his label and getting other artists as well. It's interesting to see if he's kind of breaking down and saying, okay, well, I'm about to, to go beyond just the music side and really kind of take a hold on different kind of media industries. I find it, you know, really inspirational at a time where the creative industry has typically suffered. Yeah. Um, I guess some may challenge me on that statement because there have been new kind of mm. frameworks and opportunities that have emerged for, for almost everyone to be a creative, but in the literal sense to actually monetize and to, to have the, the, the spotlight on you for all the right ways. Well, it's it's organize, monetize, and distribute, right? It's kind of like coming up with a collaborative kind of kind of um, criteria that kind of brings people or artists together, yeah. right? So like discovery is really hard still, right? And if you could kind of group a people who have kind of uh, a very kind of similar ethos and then help them monetize and distribute, I think that could be really powerful. He's uh, rolled out something called the PG Lang Times. I see it's in partnership with the LA Times. They've put out a four-minute video, which might have some samples, which has some samples or audio samples of, of what could be 
upcoming tracks. Yeah, uh, which is supposedly, or from what I can understand, rumored to be rock-infused. Um, I think Kendrick's always got something very thought-provoking mm. um, to release or to say, which is really great in today's world. Uh, I think you couple Kendrick's uh, kind of album rollout with the likes of The Weeknd, uh, which it's interesting. He released three tracks and his album's only coming out on March 20th. Um, so he's touring in London on October in October 13th this year. Yeah. Um, we're in for a, for a great year of music. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what the Kendrick kind of album and movement actually looks like. And speaking of something that we've been really kind of pleased with, the disappointment around kind of New Music Friday this week, huh. not a lot there in terms of songs that we've been thinking actually, oh yeah, this could be a banger. I, I think I mentioned to you that that my top track, which kind of says a lot for the new music Friday quality, has been the Debbie Lovato track. Um, and I think that says, that says quite a bit um, there. I mean, it is a good track. It is quite a different kind of departure for Debbie, and, but there there wasn't just a lot of quality. I think I've been singing little Uzi Vert's kind of Backstreet Boys cover at Debbie Lovato, which I feel embarrassed even that that came out of my mouth. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. You need some counseling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that being said, you know, hopefully the rest of the year we'll kind of re- re- recoup and, and we'll see a lot of really great music coming out the rest of the year. Totally. Take a listen to Russ if you're interested. Really great. He's like a hip-hop-infused John Mayer. He's even had John Mayer's endorsement. Got some great singles. I know Spotify's algorithms don't always work so well when you're looking at playing a specific single. Mm. His release model's always been different in that regard. Shake the Snow Globe's a great album. Uh, I mean, don't you agree? Yeah, yeah. I, I really did dig uh, Shake Shake your, Shake the Snow Globe. I think, uh, you know, if you're interested in kind of like the story behind the music as well, there are some some great interviews. I think you were mentioning yeah. with Joe Budden. Joe Budden's pull-up season. Take a listen to that season two. Uh, some, some great interviews there. One with Big Sean focusing on depression as well as the mechanics behind the music industry. Russ talking about uh, kind of his attitude and people's perceptions as well as his release strategies in today's world. So if you're an aspiring artist and you're listening to this, take a listen. Uh, otherwise, that sounds like a wrap for this week. Yeah, I think so. So thanks again for listening to uh, Season 2, Episode 4 of Middle School Music. You can find us on Twitter at MDLSKL underscore music. You can find me on Twitter at Farhan Lalji. Dario, where can the good listeners find you? On at Dario underscore Devet. And Is that with a W? With a W. With a w. Is Farhan with a PH or an F? No, it's got an F. Okay. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. See ya. <laughs> Ciao. Bye.